G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and this is The Policy Shop, a place to think about policy choices. And in this episode, we ask, is there an issue of stagnating household wealth and growing income inequality in Australia? And if so, what policy responses are possible? The data certainly showed the reality of the boom being well and truly over and a new economic reality confronting uh, Australia. It's a very difficult mix that people have to navigate. And many of them experience frustration when they're urged to learn how to budget or how to save or how to be better financial managers, when in fact their income is not sufficient for them to make ends meet. Some thoughts from my guests today, Shelley Mallett and Roger Wilkins. More from them shortly. Australia takes pride in the idea of egalitarianism, the fair go, and most of us like to think that these values still hold strong. But the latest HILDA survey points to some significant trends in Australian society. HILDA, or the Household Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia survey, is a comprehensive longitudinal study of over 17,000 Australians. Since it began in 2001, it's had much to tell us about the health, wealth, work and family lives of Australians. It's been a rich information source for policymakers. And this year's report has just been released by the Melbourne Institute. The numbers confirm that household wealth is stagnating, home debt has doubled since 2002 and inequality is growing. There's a divide between rich and poor, between young and old, Wages are rising very slowly, but housing prices are soaring. And perhaps not surprisingly, we're not getting enough sleep. So what can we learn from this latest insight into the lives of Australians? And can the numbers inform good policy choices? Well, let's hear from our guests. Professor Roger Wilkins is an economist with the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research at the University of Melbourne, and he's Deputy Director of Research of the HILDA Survey. Welcome, Roger. Thank you, Glenn. And Professor Shelley Mallett is General Manager of Research and Policy at the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence and a Professorial Fellow of Social Policy at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Shelley. Thanks, Glenn. I'd like to throw the first question to you, Roger. Before we get into the survey's findings and, of course, the policy implications, can you tell us a bit about the HILDA survey, its aims, and importantly, its methodology? Yes, yeah, so as you mentioned, the HILDA survey started in 2001, and it was the product of some visionary public servants, really, uh, in what is now the Department of Social Services, who saw this important gap in the data landscape in Australia. There simply wasn't any longitudinal household survey data available for a, a representative sample of, of the Australian population. And uh, uh, despite repeated efforts to get the ABS to do undertake such a, an exercise, uh, they, they had no success. So they essentially went out on their own and uh, and secured funding from the then Howard government to begin the HILDA survey. Uh, its first wave in 2001, uh, we're now currently collecting our 16th wave with many of the same people who responded in 2001. And is it unusual to combine questions about income, debt and taxation with questions about sleep and exercise? Yes, it is quite unusual. In fact, that's one of the key features of the HILDA data is its richness, that uh, it combines information on a wide variety of 
dimensions of, of life in Australia and allows researchers to explore all sorts of linkages uh, that they might not otherwise be able to do. And do you find that the big trends continue year after year or do they jump around more often, perhaps as economic circumstances change each time the survey is applied? The answer is a bit of both. Uh, Certainly many people do have quite stable lives, but one of the findings of the HILDA survey is that there is also perhaps a surprising degree of of, uh, of mobility or, or change in people's lives. So uh, when, when we looked at the cross-sectional ABS data that we had previously, it tended to encourage a mentality that the poor were always poor and the rich were always rich, for example, or the people on welfare in one year were the same people on welfare in the next year. And, uh, and Hilda really uh, showed that uh, that's far from the case, that uh, many people do move up and down the economic ladder, so to speak. Well, we'll turn in a minute to that question of volatility, but Shelley Mallet, how does an organisation such as the Brotherhood of St Lawrence use information garnered from the HILDA survey? Well, Glenn, we use it in a variety of ways, actually, um, from uh, drawing on it for submissions to government around key inquiries or, or those sorts of things, or we use it on a kind of daily basis in a way to, to look at what populations are, are faring badly in, in terms of poverty and inequality or health and wellbeing, um, social connection, those sorts of things. And so it guides our development of policy responses to government. It guides our response in some ways, to programs. And we also use HILDA uh, more broadly in our social exclusion monitor, which we developed in partnership with the Melbourne Institute, which offers a kind of broader definition, I guess, of exclusion as opposed to an income poverty measure. So that measure, the social exclusion monitor, was developed in 2008. Mm. Can you say what's meant by social exclusion and how do you track it? Social exclusion, uh, in broad terms, it encompasses seven domains, and those domains include things like material resources and employment, education and skills, health and disability, social connection, community, personal safety. They're the sort of domains that we look at. And it's an expanded definition of exclusion or inclusion um, that we use to guide our understanding of disadvantage. We think that um, while really useful income poverty measures can give us a guide to, to um, some fundamental experiences of poverty, we think that disadvantage is a much broader term and encompasses many more domains. And so something like the social exclusion monitor helps in looking at those multiple dimensions of disadvantage and or exclusion. When you last applied this in 2012, you found some 825,000 Australians experienced what you called deep social exclusion. Do you expect to see that number increase in the current survey? We absolutely do. We're just recalculating the survey at the moment and analysing the the data at the moment. Um, And and we do. We think that um, since 2012, things have really begun to change in the Australian economy as well as in the social life of Australia. Uh, We expect that some of those groups that we see are persistently experiencing deep disadvantage will continue to experience that. So by that, I mean people with disability, Indigenous people who are particularly overrepresented in the group that are um, experiencing deep social exclusion. We know that lone parent households are particularly vulnerable and uh, we expect to see them in in the figures. And uh, 
I guess what we're seeing uh, more broadly in the Australian community and the Australian economy is uh, rising rates of underemployment, uh, rising rates of housing um, afford- uh, poor affordability or unaffordability. And these sorts of big issues are going to be reflected in the data. And for that reason, we expect that we'll see at least that number who are uh, deeply excluded and anticipate that there'll be more. So before we turn to the content of the survey, it's just a question for you both as policy advisors. Do you see evidence that the HILDA survey or the Social Exclusion Monitor actually influence public policy? Can you point to examples where public policy has been changed because this data has changed perceptions? Yes, that's a very difficult thing to do in practice. Uh, very rarely do, do a government announce a policy and provide the evidence base for which informed that policy, which motivated that policy. Uh, so we see more in more indirect ways, uh, things like uh, mentions in in, uh, in Hansard. Hilda is often uh, mentioned in, in debate in Parliament. Uh, uh, we, we have a few specific examples. Think, for example, the uh, 2009 Age Pension Review relied on Hilda survey data to look at the adequacy of the of the single pension, and and so that certainly informed that review, which resulted in an increase in the single age pension. Uh, but as as I said, uh, many of the uh, indicators we get are more indirect. So, for example, the Productivity Commission and the Reserve Bank are very heavy users of the data, and 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 many of their reports contain analysis of the data. I'd actually reiterate what Roger's saying. Um, the way that we use it really is to substantiate a claim. You know, for example, uh, one of the figures that we repeatedly reference is you know the rates of social exclusion for people who don't complete Year Twelve, and it's a very compelling statistic. You know that they're two and a half times more likely to feel experience exclusion, and. So we would use that sort of data in submission to government about around education policy, whether it's state or, or federal level policy, and we have, and it's been cited repeatedly. And uh, we think that that substantiates the claims within certain sorts of policy offerings. So let's turn then to the content of the HILDA survey. Let's start with poverty, because you've both touched on that. Roger, how is poverty measured in this survey? Yes, well, I mean, we don't explicitly measure it in terms of, for example, asking a question of the nature, are you in poverty? In fact, there is a, a much debate about the way you should measure poverty, and there are a variety of, of different measures. Probably internationally, the most common way is what we call a relative income poverty measure, whereby if an individual's household income adjusted for the needs of that household, particularly in terms of the size of that household. If it is less than half the median household income, then that individual is regarded as being in, in income poverty. Um, but there are a, a wide variety of other poverty measures. And in fact, in 2014, uh, we implemented a, a questionnaire sequence looking at material deprivation, which is a much more direct way of getting at what it says, material deprivation and what things people don't have and ascertaining whether the reason they don't have them is because they can't afford them. So HILDA actually does allow you to examine a, a variety of different measures of poverty, including the, uh, the construction of the social exclusion monitor that Shelley was, was talking about. Roger, the most recent survey finds that levels of poverty have eased in Australia, but that people tend to go in and out of poverty, something you mentioned at the start. They don't stay there indefinitely, but they cycle. Can you say a little about that? Can, what can we infer from that phenomenon? Yeah, so the last few years has seen a, a slight uh, moderation in the proportion of the population in poverty, um, but that 
actually mostly reflects the fact that average household incomes, the median household income, has actually been uh, rather stagnant essentially since 2009. And so uh, it's not so much a case of the income of the poor growing strongly as the income of the middle failing to grow. Uh, so you, you want to be careful in uh, interpreting that as a, as, a, as a positive development. Yes, Hilda certainly uh, shows that for most people, poverty is a, a fairly short-term experience. I think around about, from memory, 80 to 85% of spells in poverty are three years or less. Three years is still quite a long time to be in, in poverty. Uh, but it, it really, I think, highlights that from a policymaker's point of view, you're probably most concerned about long-term poverty. And so it would be those 15% who are in this entrenched state where you really want to focus most of your energies. And, and Hilda allows you to identify who those people are. Shelley, you talked about changes in Australian society. Is there a change in understanding of poverty and are there changes in who is falling in and out of poverty? Look, I think over the last few years that it's been pr pretty consistent about who are the, the main populations that are experiencing poverty. And I, I mentioned some of those before. And uh, no matter which way you measure it, whether it's a, a kind of very limited income measure or a more expanded definition of disadvantage or, or social exclusion, you come up with a consistent group. They're lone parents and uh, and when you look in other policy domains, uh, child protection, juvenile justice, prisons, etc., what you see is that these populations are overrepresented in the groups. We're also seeing um, rates of of disadvantage or poverty among the young, the very young, and also the very old. And so it's it's pretty that that's pretty consistent. I think one that's sometimes not really, that attention's not really drawn to it, are people with a disability. We know that they experience incredible health inequalities as well as income poverty and a broader notion of social exclusion where they have been excluded from the mainstream of the community. So those groups are pretty persistent over time. So just staying with the cycling effect, people coming in and out of poverty, what interventions seem to work? What makes a difference about whether people fall back into poverty or actually sort of escape the poverty trap? So I think uh, when we think about these issues at the Brotherhood, um, we think that that we need to think of it in complex ways. We don't think that there's some single kind of magic bullet <laughs> that's going to uh, address the issue. Uh, we think that we have to provide sort of multi-level and multi-temporal responses. So um, not to make it too complex, but we think that we have to look at short-term responses as well as longer-term responses. Um, and we have to look at kind of approaches that uh, involve programs and particular forms of practice within those programs, as well as bigger level, structural level policy um, shifts. So when we look at different populations, the drivers and the things that are required are quite different. Yes, I, I completely agree with Shelley on this. And I'd also add that the policy response really needs to be sensitive to the particular circumstances of the individual. So the issues faced by young people in poverty are quite different from uh, the issues faced by lone parents. And, and again, people with uh, severe disability or mental health issues, they each have their separate challenges that uh, would require policies that are particular to their needs. So the opposite of poverty, of course, is wealth, and Hilda has a lot to say here also. Roger, one of the very interesting areas of discussion in the report is what's happened 
to family incomes, but also to household wealth. Would you like to say a little about the trends? Yeah, so up until around about 2009, we saw extraordinarily strong growth in household incomes. Uh, it was a continuation of a trend that really has its roots, its roots back in about 1993, where we saw essentially an unprecedented increase in household incomes. And I don't just mean in Australia's history, I mean pretty much in the developed world. And that all essentially came to an end in 2009, uh, since when average household incomes have basically not moved. So uh, the data certainly showed the reality of the boom being well and truly over and a new economic reality confronting uh, Australia. The wealth data we have confirms that same pattern. We only have good wealth data back to 2002 and we only ascertain wealth every four years. But what we see there is from 2002 to 2006, household wealth grew dramatically. But since 2006 has essentially remained on average, unchanged. So we're still very much living with the effects of the global financial crisis. That would be one interpretation. Another would be that the financial crisis precipitated, I guess, the end of the boom, so that rather than the financial crisis itself causing a deterioration in in household incomes, uh, it's more that it was the trigger for the end of the resources boom that really drove much of the the growth up to the the mid-2000s. But notwithstanding the stagnation in income, there are important trends, aren't there, in wealth that we're seeing? And, And one of those is the growing divide across generations that the baby boomers are doing very well, but few others are. Yes, yeah, so quite remarkably, we uh, certainly since 2006, we've actually seen wealth inequality over the population as a whole remain relatively unchanged. But within that, uh, we've seen an increased divide between the young and the old. So for example, if we were to take the 2002 to 2014 period as a whole, amongst the 65 and overs, household wealth on average increased by 65% in real terms. Uh, the other end of the spectrum, amongst 25 to 34-year-olds, uh, their average household wealth increased by 3%. And so we, we, you always expect to see that gradient of wealth by age, that uh, wealth tends to accumulate with age as you pay off the mortgage and accumulate superannuation and so on. Uh, but that gradient has, has increased uh, over the last sort of 15 years. Shelley, as Roger's just argued, that sometimes overall figures can mask trends, And although these figures show that for those with home ownership, wealth has apparently increased, so has household debt, more than doubling over the last 15 years. Many people report they don't have savings in case of an emergency. They're putting off going to the dentist. They struggle with childcare and private health insurance. Are these the issues that the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence discovers as it goes into the community? Look, they're incredibly difficult issues for the most disadvantaged in the community and combine those things with um, issues around housing affordability and insecure tenure in rental housing, which many of these at a lower uh, end of the income spectrum are experiencing, that and insecure work and underemployment. And uh, you can see that it's a very difficult mix that, that people have to navigate. And many of them experience frustration, I guess, when they're kind of urged to learn how to budget or how to save or how to be better financial managers, when in fact, their income is not sufficient for them to make ends meet. And their income is not rising. And it's not rising. Um, And actually, because of things like underemployment and insecure work, they can't predict their income from week to week, which makes it incredibly difficult to plan. 
So let's pick up that housing question because that's a very important part of the survey. The survey shows a continued decline in home ownership. 57% of adults in 2002, now just 52%, and predicted to actually fall below 50% in 2017. Shelley, the declining ownership means most people must rent, and indeed a majority of Australians will live in rented accommodation relatively soon. Yet we don't live in a regulatory environment that's focused on renters because it hasn't been the way our accommodation has been structured. And we don't have long-term leases typically to protect people from sharp rises and so on. It's a really difficult area for government. It's hard to do this with skill to balance rights and incentives to encourage new property development, yet discourage discrimination. Are there models to explore from other nations where for a long time most people have rented? Yeah, I think we typically look to Europe, actually, Glyn, for those sorts of models where we see in Germany long-term tenure situation for people who are renters. And as you suggest, that's going to be absolutely crucial in Australia as home ownership falls. Um, but uh, I think we're, we're kind of stumped here in Australia in terms of our, our response to the issues around rent. And uh, we've, we've yet to really come to grips with models that, that can work here. Let's turn then to the policy lessons from Hilda. And Shelley, you've talked about trying to influence government through a range of measures and the complexity of responses. But what do you hope government, state and federal will take from the HILDA survey and where do you look for change? Look, I think I uh, would hope across a number of um, measures and, and domains, Glenn, uh, education. We think that it's absolutely crucial to address issues around inequity of opportunity to high quality education. So we'd, we'd hope that the data kind of points to that issue. Um, I think we want to, in, in broad terms, underline the corrosive effects of inequality to broader health and wellbeing and also um, to social cohesion. You know, we're particularly interested at the brotherhood around issues around employment and economic participation because we know that that is a crucial way to address income inequality as well as to create wealth and uh, etc. So we would want to point the government towards employment policies, both the supply and demand policies uh, that that are going to impact upon people's capacity to uh, engage in the labour market. Roger. Well, I maybe might be accused of being a little unambitious with the policy value of Hilda, but I, I actually don't think so. So I think one of the core benefits of Hilda is that it provides a discipline on public debate, that arguments made for policies on false premises can get exposed by the HILDA data. Uh, so it can certainly prevent, I think, a lot of bad policy uh, coming into existence. How has HILDA helped hold governments to account around policy proposals? Well, we've just been talking about the decline in home ownership, and that certainly is a big public policy issue in Australia. And in that context, I think there's been a lot of uh, debate around investor incentives to invest in the in the housing market, the argument being that tax policy is increasing investor demand for housing and helping to price out first home buyers out of the housing market. Uh, and so there's been quite a bit of discussion around negative gearing. And in that context, one of the arguments was that uh, most investors in property were actually low to middle income earners. And that obviously impacts on people's perceptions about what 
the appropriate policy response should be. In particular, there was an, the argument that uh, if, if it's primarily low and middle income earners who hold these investment properties, then um, measures to increase the tax payable by those individuals wouldn't be so attractive. But the HILDA data allows us to look at this question ex- explicitly. And in particular, we, we, we can see that, in fact, uh, investors are very much at the top of both the income and wealth distributions. And so I think it ad- improves the quality of debate when uh, assertions uh, such as were made in, in the context of, of, of that debate can be uh, proven false. And Shelley, we've heard from this discussion that the Hilda data has great potential to influence policy. Mm. But when you think about it, and you think about your work with the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence and the things that you're passionate about, what are you looking to draw out of this data? Who are you hoping will hear about it? What are you hoping to influence? In basic terms, we'd be wanting to look at who um, has wealth and who doesn't, who um, is uh, has high income and who doesn't, and what, what are the impacts of that? We'd be interested in the relationship between uh, that and, and housing and uh, employment, etc. And, and we would try to, to glean from the data the characteristics of the community. Now, to that, we'd add a whole rich, uh, a lot of other sources of data as well. And we'd also look at our understanding of people's experience. So we'd, we'd combine it with uh, more kind of nitty-gritty data that you get from perhaps qualitative um, research as well as from anecdotal responses, actually, from programs to really try to get a fine-grained understanding of the way that these kind of this helicopter view that, that, that Hilda provides into the kind of state of the economy and people's engagement with it, to really try and understand the way that people navigate their lives. Roger, you've stressed the breadth of Hilda, that it covers a whole range of areas. You've been part of tracking 17,000 Australians now over a significant period. Have you watched particular trends that cause you concern? Well, I mean, we mentioned the, uh, the, I guess, the growing intergenerational divide in wealth, and that certainly, I think, is some cause for concern, particularly on the home ownership dimension. I think that in the Australian context, home ownership is important to our broader social health, the, the functioning of society, social stability, if you like. Uh, the rental market is a very poor substitute for home ownership. And so I would certainly be interested in uh, policies focused on stemming that trend. And Shelley, are there moments of elation in seeing this data? Are there things in the data that please you, trends that you feel it's great to see validated? Uh I couldn't say there were moments of elation, actually. Um, and actually, I think th- actually the opposite, probably. There, there were disturbing trends. Uh, the trends around gender really disturbed me. I think that there's a... Um, and gender and income uh, in, in particular, I, I actually found quite breathtaking. Now, that shouldn't be the case that I would do that, but I actually did in, in, in looking at them and I was... Uh, to, you, you to, mean- Particularly in income, Betu- and between and an income, absolutely clear differential yeah, between, between male, ma- and, female. male and females, and yeah. and I think that um, that has been such a persistent gap, and and to to realise that in fact it's growing 
rather than declining, was um, really quite shocking to me. And uh, and I think because gender is at the heart of a range of very important things in the labour market, in our caring relationships, etc., that that really define um, how we are in the community. And uh, so that that was particularly shocking. Even high levels of tertiary education don't close the gender gap. That's exactly right. And uh, I, th- I wonder how we can begin a kind of national conversation around that. And especially when you begin to think as well about high levels of violence and, and uh, some of these other major policy areas that we are currently grappling with as a community, then I think that um, we need to recover a gender analysis in much of our work. So, something that possibly on the surface is not a positive uh, finding of the Hilda survey, but which I actually think is a very positive finding. Uh, there's a remarkable statistic that comes out of the data, which is that over a 14-year f- period from 2001 to 2014, nearly 70% of working-age people were at some stage dependent on the income support system. So they had at least one member of their household uh, receiving a welfare payment such as New Start Allowance or the Disability Support Pension or or, or, or something of that nature. Now, that sounds ex- alarmingly high, except that in any one given year, only approximately 18% of people aged 18 to 64 are receiving income support. And what that says to me is that for many people, the welfare system actually does its job. It's a, it's a safety net and they aren't long-term on that benefit. They do bounce back from their adverse uh, experiences. And uh, and so for me, that was a, a positive finding on both the functioning of our, our welfare system, but also the ability of people to uh, recover from adversity. So I guess to complement that, when I read that figure, I, I was also heartened, uh, Roger, and it made me reflect on a range of studies that I've done over the years, whether it's with homeless people, with lone parents, with people with a disability or Indigenous uh, communities, um, that when we ask them about income support, it should be no surprise to us. They actually don't want to be on income support. They're actually really trying to get off in some income support and make their own way in the world to be employed and uh, to be if not independent, um, at least to be able to support themselves and their families. So, so much to learn from this important survey and all of the work that follows from it. It makes it clear that we're living in a change of economic reality, an era of low productivity growth and changing demographics and the effects of policy choices around housing and superannuation. Uh, These are having profound changes in the distribution of wealth in our society and the sense of stagnation for many, of course, is credited with the politics of anger overseas. So there are consequences. Yet, as you've both just pointed out, Hilda does show overall fewer Australians living in poverty and a recycling of misadventure or misfortune that does suggest that personal initiative plus state, the right state interventions carefully targeted can actually make a difference to the life chances of people, which is the very important point about the social welfare system doing its work. And the data on wealth does point to the phenomenon emphasised by Thomas Piketty, the gradual concentration of capital represented particularly in housing in a period of low economic growth. We're going to face some very important 
political and social adjustments as the fair go becomes a lot harder to achieve and as most Australians become renters, which is not how we think of ourselves. So lots to mull, but it's been a great pleasure today talking with Professor Roger Wilkins from the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research at the University of Melbourne. Thank you, Glenn. And of course, with Professor Shelley Mallett, the General Manager of Research and Policy at the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence and Professorial Fellow of Social Policy at the University of Melbourne. Thanks, Glenn. I'm Glenn Davis. Catch you next time at The Policy Shop. The Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi and Heather Jarvis, with audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour and research by Ellie MacDonald. You can find this podcast and read more on this topic at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au and remember to subscribe to The Policy Shop on iTunes. Copyright University of Melbourne 2016.